Okay, let's talk about sake. All right, Elise, uh, may I invite you to begin? Sure. Um, I'm actually really glad that we are doing this topic again. And I know that our group covered this um, last year. And I was looking back and I had some really great notes um, on my topic that someone else gave last year. So I was really happy to have that information. And also I did a lot of uh, research online and watched some really cool sake videos on YouTube. Um, there was especially one that came up where a guy was visiting the Desai Brewery, and that was really interesting to watch. I watched probably like five or six of them, but especially that one was really good. So um, the topic that I have is Koji and Koji Kin, and how are these two, um, you know, are these two things the same? Obviously, no, they're not, but uh, we'll kind of get into... Um, what all of those are. So um, koji itself is um, the term that's used to refer to the rice when it has been um, inoculated, so to speak, with the koji kin, which is the mold, the specific mold that's used to inoculate the rice. So as I was researching these, I kind of started with koji and then I went, actually, it really starts with koji kin. So I want to talk about that first. So koji kin is the mold that's used to inoculate the rice, and um, its specific scientific name is Aspergillus orze. Um, and I can put that up so that you can see that word, but that's its uh, scientific word. And what it is, is it's a filamentous fungus that um, ends up penetrating, it either wraps around or penetrates into the grain of the rice, and its function, what it does is it produces an amylase, which helps to convert the starches from the rice into fermentable sugars. So uh, that process is called saccharification. And that's essentially what is happening um, during this koji making process. Uh, something else that I wanted to point out, and I had in my notes from last year and looked up and kind of re-verified and researched this, is that... The Brewing Society of Japan, uh, one of their scientists actually referred to Aspergillus orze as uh, sort of a national fungus in the same way that you might have a national state, you know, national flower or um, a national bird, something like that. He called uh, Kojikin and Aspergillus orze the um, national fungus of Japan. And uh, the Brewing Society of Japan actually adopted this as, as a thing. So Kojikin is very, very important to Japanese way of life and society, and it's really important for this. And I'll talk about some other foods later that are made with uh, Kojikin. So there are essentially like three varieties of Kojikin, and they're all kind of named for a particular color, but they also impart different sorts of qualities to the sake. Um, obviously, in Japan, if you walk up and ask for sake, they will kind of look at you like you're crazy because sake to them just means any sort of fermented beverage. So it could be a whole bunch of different things. Uh, but the specific term that they use in Japan is uh, nihonshu. For sake. So back to the three varieties of Kojikin. The first one, yellow. 
is used for making nihonshu or sake. And it's definitely a more delicate uh, type. It makes fruity, light, and smooth sake, and it's temperature sensitive. And as kind of we go through this process, there is a lot of temperature sensitivity, which I'll go into a little bit later. Uh, the next variety is called black, and it's very strong. So it's not as sensitive to fluctuations in temperature. And it's the easiest one to use and the most effective. Um, it has a higher level of citric acid, and it can create uh, sakes with sweetness. So this is kind of like, I was kind of thinking about this as more of like a pretty stronger uh, sort of uh, substance that's able to, um, you know, really break down that starch and turn it into sugar quickly. And there's another one called white, uh, which is used in making shochu. And this is also a very fast and aggressive process of sacrification, which is turning those starches into sugar. So different um, different levels are used for making different products. <clears throat> and at the sake brewery, koji making is the most important step. I watched like two or three different videos that said, this is the most important thing that we are doing here. Um, very precise measurements and temperatures. And the whole process takes about two to three days from start to finish to begin with rice and end with your koji. So this whole process is done in a room called the Koji Muro, uh, M-U-R-O. And this is a warm room. Uh, it's a room that's kept very warm and at high humidity. Uh, they keep this room at about uh, 43 degrees Celsius, which is really hot. If you think about normal body temperature being 37 degrees Celsius and that translating to 98.6, 43 is like, you know, 105 or something. I didn't do the translation, but it's it's really hot and very high humidity. This room is kept very, very clean to prevent any sort of contamination during the process. They even cover the air vents to avoid any um, you know, non-beneficial mold, fungus, or bacteria to get into uh, this room because they're just really creating a very specific temperature and environment, and then they, they don't want that to be polluted. So even the workers have to be very, very careful. Um, the pictures that I saw, they all have uh, head coverings. They're wearing uh, white, and they are not allowed to eat yogurt even before work because that's something that could affect uh, this process. And they're not allowed to wear fragrance. Um, and this is pretty this is pretty hard work for these workers. It's about 40 to 72 hours of intense work of moving rice, um, stirring rice, uh, shaking rice, moving that all around during this process. So the way that it starts, uh, first of all, the rice is... Um, polished to its particular degree of polishing. It's soaked and then steamed and then chilled. So obviously, as I was thinking about that, what they're trying to do is to get this rice to kind of like open up, um, you know, almost like germinate in a way. And the so the rice is all spread out on big tables. And I watched at this video uh, that was set at the Desai Brewery, I watched the guys go through and they just have a little shaker and they're shaking at very precise intervals, shaking out the uh, koji keen on top of the rice. So 
that's spread out, uh, kind of shaken on the top. And then they let the rice rest for about 12 to 16 hours. They wrap it up to keep it warm because it is very temperature sensitive uh, during this time. And they try, they actually lower the temperature and keep it at about 35 to 40 degrees Celsius. And what's happening during this time is that the kojikin is propagating. And as I mentioned, it's a filamentous fungus. So it's kind of wrapping, it's growing these long hyphae and wrapping around the rice. Um, just to kind of get the whole uh, thing of rice inoculated. So the spores are multiplying and the koji is propagating. Then after about that initial 12 to 16 hours, then they come in and they start mixing and dividing. So they're taking, they're mixing the rice together. They're dividing it into different, um, you know, storage containers depending on uh, what's happening. So, and then the rice is mixed by hand for about another 48 hours or so during this whole process. So this is a very labor intensive, very strict particular um, sort of process to make the koji. And two types end up being produced. Uh, there's one, my pronunciation is not so good here, I'm sure, called uh, sohas. And that's when the rice is completely covered with the kojikin. And this is used more for uh, junmai styles. And there's another uh, type called sukiyas or sukihes, which is kind of speckled with the kojikin. And this is where the kojikin, instead of wrapping around, actually kind of reaches the center of the kernel and really kind of more aggressively gets that process of sacrification started. And that's used for uh, ginjo styles. Um, as I was watching the video about the Desai Brewery, they said that they have a particular strain that they use that also penetrates this rice as opposed to wrapping around it. So I'm thinking that they have more the style of the sukiyas. It didn't spell that out in the video, but it was a very good video. So after that period of time, that's when you have um, your koji. And kind of the difference between this, the koji is the mold on the rice and the rice altogether. And then the kojikin is the mold itself. And so from that point, then you would uh, take your koji that you created and then uh, proceed to uh, fermentation and uh, sake making after that. So this is a really important, kojikin is a really important um, uh, substance, I guess, or fungus in Japan. And many people consider that uh, kojikin is one of the biggest factors that contributes to the longevity of the Japanese people. Um, you know, many live into their 80s, and it's because they are, um, you know, drinking sake, consuming um, these fermented food products. And uh, another food that's made with kojikin is miso. And so you're taking the soy and um, inoculating it with the kojikin to uh, produce the fermentation. And um, fermentation increases isoflavone levels. And I read that isoflavones can prevent cancer. So this is a lot of, like I said, a lot of people really look at this as a factor why the Japanese people are able to um, live so long. It's because they're drinking some great sake and eating some delicious miso 
all thanks to the help of our friend Aspergillus Orze or the Koji King. Any questions so far? Let's see. That was great. I love Desai, by the way. They are one of my favorite producers. They only produce Daiginjo sakes. Okay. And so that makes sense that they would have kind of that separate strain. You should check out that YouTube video. It's maybe like 10 or 15 minutes. And when I searched sake, it came right up. And it was really interesting to see that brewery. Because I've got the 23, you know, which is really delicious. Which is, it, it's almost like drinking nothing. It's so light and ethereal. <laughs> it's like, it's kind of, it's delicious. Yeah. Yeah. And elegant. But also I thought it's pretty complex too, even though it is light. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It rem- uh, the Desai Sakes remind me of like Grand Cru Chablis. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of kind of creamy texture, very round, uh, but very clean and precise um, so, you know, not going to be like smoky necessarily like Shibley would be, but it just reminds me of that really kind of piercing linear style. I agree. They make one called the Beyond. Oh, is that the one they polished for? Yeah, I think it's 11%. Wow. Or maybe 19%. It's, it's, it's down there. The, the grains are tiny. Um, yeah. Yeah, I know they really made a big when they came out with the 23 because nobody had ever done that before. So of course they had to go beyond. Beyond. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that makes sense. Cool. Well, thanks, Elise. That was great. Thank you. I had some good notes from last year too. Yes. So. <laughs> We're always building on our next thing here. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, did any of you have any people pass advance from your communities? Yeah. We had a couple from Seattle, which is cool. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess I will go next here. And my topic today is pasteurization with sake. So um, this is an important aspect of a lot of beverages as well as food products and pasteurization is essentially raising the temperature of a uh, food or beverage to the point that it um, kind of deactivates any enzymes and also might kill microbes, whether that be bacteria most often or maybe fungus, uh, named for Louis Pasteur. Um, it is really important in the production of milk and sake. Uh, we also see like juices, orange juices and things that are pasteurized and potentially many other things. Um, but for sake, it's definitely um, an important, it's an important thing for most exported sake um, because without the pasteurization, the beverage becomes vulnerable to influence of um, outside microbes. Now, I'm not sure exactly what happens if you have an unpasteurized sake and you just ship it at a higher temperature. If there are maybe microbes that just get in there from bottling, because they're not going to get in if it's a sealed container. But I'm guessing that maybe they're 
precursors might be in the sake and they would just activate at a warmer temperature. I don't know. But the temperature that is recommended for storing unpasteurized sake is negative five degrees Celsius, which is below freezing. So that's 23 degrees Fahrenheit, which seems pretty cold. And like my fridge at home definitely is not that cold. So it's like, do you store it in the freezer? That seems like too cold. So uh, maybe they have special fridges for unpasteurized sake. Uh, well, before we get to unpasteurized sake, let's first talk about pasteurized styles. And in, uh, in researching these different styles related to pasteurization, there are a bunch of different terms. And I think these are definitely like off the deep end, like quite advanced terms that I hadn't really heard of before. So the first is Hiire sake, and that's H-I-I-R-E, hiire sake. And that's sake that's pasteurized twice. So I would say probably the majority of styles of sake would be within this category of hiire sake. And it's going to have a pasteurization before cellaring and then before bottling. So these two pasteurization steps are a way of uh, protecting the sake. Um, the first, I think, is important because if it's going to just stay for, let's say, six months in the cellar, that would be a vulnerable time. And then the second time would be before bottling. And so it's kind of doing the pasteurization before a period of rest or transport. And it's going to be a quick what they call flash pasteurization at 65 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's not super high temperature. It's not like even body temperature, It, which I was surprised by. I was like, is that all it is, is 65 degrees Fahrenheit? But I might need to check a second source. That just doesn't seem super hot. Um, but hey, maybe that's all it takes. So then there are various styles of unpasteurized sake. Uh, I'm going to say that there are three kind of broad categories, totally unpasteurized. And then there is a style where the first pasteurization is skipped and they choose to wait and do it at the end. And that's called namachozo. They're choosing to wait. <laughs> and that's just my own way of remembering it. And then they might do the inverse where they zoom ahead and do the pasteurization early and skip it later. And that's namazume. So namachozo, they're choosing to wait and pasteurize at the end. Namazume, they're zooming ahead and pasteurizing early on. And the period is pasteurizing before cellaring or before bottling, with cellaring in between. If it's totally unpasteurized, that would be called namazake or honnama, H-O-N, honnama or namanama. Those all mean the same thing. And that would be totally unpasteurized sake. There are some additional styles that can be sort of combined with this unpasteurization. One example is nama genshu. So genshu is a style of sake that is undiluted. So it's going to be the same alcohol strength that it would be just from the press, which would be a bit higher than other sake, so 20 to 21% would be common for Genshu versus 17, 18% for 
uh, diluted sake, which would be more common. So if it's undiluted, that's Genshu. If it's unpasteurized, that's Nama. So together they make Nama Genshu. There's another uh, combo that you might see, which is Junmai Nama. Junmai meaning there's no addition of brewer's alcohol and Nama being unpasteurized. So Junmai Nama is no brewer's alcohol added and no pasteurization. Now the thing about Junmai is that's kind of opposing the style called Honjozo. Honjozo would have brewer's alcohol added, but then it's going to be diluted again. So really a Junmai and a Honjozo might have the same final alcohol by volume, but dilution is what's causing that. And that's a little bit of a, a different topic, but really the highest alcohol style is going to be that Genshu versus Junmai and Hanjozo would probably have the same alcohol around 17, 18%. Genshu is going to be higher at 21%. So that combination we were talking about, Junmai, Nama. Now, we're going to start talking about different releases throughout the year and how they relate to Nama styles. So there are three seasonal releases and each has a different Nama relation. So there's a style that would be a spring style called Shiboritate, which means fresh squeezed. And that's basically right from the press, fresh squeezed. And it might be what's called a Muroka Nama Genshu Shiboritate. I'll say that again. Muroka, Nama Genshu, Shiboritate. So Muroka means non-charcoal filtered, Nama unpasteurized, Genshu undiluted, and Shiboritate is fresh squeezed. So it's kind of brand new. And there's a term called, you know, like Sake Nouveau. That's, a, that's sort of what that is. Uh, and that will be often released in the spring. Shiboritate, fresh pressed, First cut off the press, bottle on its own, and, and immediately released without the standard practice of aging several months in the bottle um, in the brewery. And then there's a subset of that called Arabashiri. Arabashiri, free run, essentially bottling of the free run juice to which little or no pressure has been applied. So that is a subset of Shiboritate. So that's the spring release. Okay, in the summer, there's a style called Natsu. And I saw it written Natsu Nama or Natsu Zake. And it is stored at the brewery and released in summer and is often unpasteurized, but that's not required. It just happens to be that the Natsu Sake is, is often not pasteurized. And um, yeah, so it's a summer release. And then later in the fall, there's a style called Hiya Oroshi. H-I-Y-A, Hiya Oroshi, O-R-O-S-H-I. So 
this is a release in the fall that is typically Namazume. So it's been pasteurized once already, but for this fall release is not pasteurized at the end. And I saw Namazume spelled two ways. Namazume, Z-U-M-E, and Namazume, T-Z-U-M-E. So I guess they're kind of the same anglicized spelling of sume. So another term that I'll share is shinshu. And shinshu means new sake. And it's any sake that's released from the current brewing year. So I guess a 2019 brewed sake that's released this year would be called shinshu. It would not be that if it's released in 2020, which I guess implicitly is maybe how most sakes are done. I'd have to look a little bit more at that timeline. So in summary, um, there are different styles of pasteurized and unpasteurized sake. Again, pasteurized twice is called hiire sake. There are two kinds that have pasteurized once, namachozo and namazume. Namazume is pasteurized early, namachozo is pasteurized late, and then totally unpasteurized sake is namazake or honnama or namanama. Undiluted sake that is unpasteurized is namagenshu. Um, sake without brewer's alcohol added that's unpasteurized is junmai nama. And non-charcoal filtered, undiluted, unpasteurized, fresh squeezed is muroka namagenshu shiboritate. A subset of which ara bashiri is a free run. There's a... That's, and that's the spring release. The summer release is Natsu, Nama or Natsuzake. And the fall release is Hiya Oroshi. There you go. Awesome. So I have a question. So you said spring style is typically not um, pasteurized at all. But then the fall is typically pasteurized maybe once. Is there a reason because of the time of year or just the style they're going for on why the spring versus fall is different? I would have to guess. And I think the spring style is just like, this is fresh from the press. And so there's been no time for spoilage. So I think it's the safest time to do an unpasteurized sake. It's just like, here it is. It's brand new. And with the fall release, that's going to be pasteurized early on. So like in the spring, it will be pasteurized at one time. And that fall release will not be pasteurized in the fall. Um, the inverse one where it's not pasteurized first, but it's pasteurized later. I didn't see a whole lot of reference that that's really very popular. I think it's just a term if that happens to be the case. Um, but I can't see any justification for, for doing it. I actually saw a source that said it's kind of a gimmick. Um, so I don't know. That's, that's Namachozo. But yeah, the, the Hiya Oroshi fall release is typically Namazume, where it's been pasteurized early on, which helps to protect it during that aging period. Okay. 
Um, as far as stylistically, Namazakes are often very bright, fresh, and quite, um, I don't know if tart is the right word, but there's sort of a sharpness to them versus more of a roundness with the pasteurized sakes. Yeah, so I, I bought for... Um two different concepts that we did sake programs and I bought some namazakes and they're beautiful and they're, they're, they almost, you can get like this mushroomy, more earthy quality. And I find that they're a little higher in acidity as well. Um, they're, they're gorgeous, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things you've got to make sure your distributor knows what they're doing. Um, and I, I found a really good, good one here in Austin that has a refrigerated truck. They coordinate to make sure that it goes in the refrigerator and it's super fresh. Um, but I mean, yeah, it's, it's not easy to, to deal with those. Right. For sure. But they're delicious. Yes, they are. How many, like what percentage of sakes would you say are namazake style? And is it generally found in more like higher end sort of bottlings? And then generally maybe what we're seeing on the supermarket shelf is most likely pasteurized twice. You will, you will not see a namazake on the shelf of retail. Right. Um, Stay cold. Yeah, exactly. And like when you get them in, you need to sell them quickly. So like we made it a point to serve it by the glass and get it out quickly. Um, Sorry, what was the other part of your question? Um, just like, what sort of percentage oh. you know, would you maybe estimate? Is it's it's got to be tiny because just quality sake with it, quality sake in general, I think is like, if I remember correctly, it's like two percent of, of sake made. It's it's very tiny for high quality sake, and then to take a percentage of that and turn it into nama is even smaller than that. I had I had a sake chart somewhere like I can see it that shows you how much um, quality sake is made. Let's see if I can find that and send that to y'all. But it's like shocking. Like the quality sake we drink is just a tiny bit of the production. Yeah, so I I would agree absolutely with what you're saying, Mandy. And I think it's definitely less than five percent of um, high quality sake compared to the the total. And then within high quality sake, it's probably 10% or less is Nama. Um, we do see some examples here in, in Seattle. A uh, great producer is called Kikusui, and it comes in a can. Uh, and yeah, the non premium sake goes by the term Futsu Futsushu. And that's kind of the stuff that's going to be in a big, like, by the box and often, like, served hot and, you know, is yeah. not so I good. Yeah, I saw that picture that I just put in up. But that shows you the amount of premium quality versus the Fujishu. And it's, I mean, it's shocking how little premium sake is made. Yeah. Very much. Yeah. Cool. Well, Mandy, do you want to pick it up from here? Oh, yeah, sure. Let's see here. Let me share some screen here. Come on. 
There we go. Start sharing. Got it. Okay. All right. Can you all see that? Yes. Okay. So um, my portion was on how water influences sake and really kind of um, people talk about the terroir of sake and um, how water really kind of influences that. Um, I thought it was cool to kind of really show like a 3D picture of Japan and kind of see the mountain ranges um, because that really influences the water source right there. Um, here's our prefectures here, and I'm going to go, I'm going to talk about significant prefectures um, that have water that's that's really important and defines their region, and I'm going to go from north to south so you can kind of see what, what happens with um, that change. So, let's see here. So, um, sake is composed of 80% pure water. So a lot of a lot of what you're drinking is water, and then a lot of water is used in the process. So you've got your washing, your rinsing, your soaking, um, the added to the fermented muromi, uh, and then at the end, uh, you if you're not going to do and ginshu, you're going to add water to bring the alcohol. Um, I thought this was a fun fact down here that. Um, the amount of water that goes into a bottle of sake adds up to be more than 30 times the weight of the rice used. So it's it's extremely important, and the more I researched about it, uh, the Japanese are very, very much about water. You know, they drink a lot of tea, and um, having good water source for their tea as well is important, and just drinking, you know, straight water. Um. But yeah, so I kind of targeted some important watering holes, um, and we'll just go through each one of these that are important and talk about them. So uh, Yamagata Prefecture, so you can see we're kind of starting a little bit north here. This area is contained by a lot of mountains, um, so Mount Chokai, um, this whole Zhao range. Um, you get a lot of snowfall, and then this water comes off of the mountains. And in this particular region, you have a lot of hot springs, and this gives you hard water. And what hard water does for your sake is it gives you a lot of richness, a lot of flavor. It's very texture. Um, people say it actually can kind of come across a little more higher um, in acid as well. And here is a picture of, oh, it's not Mr. Chokai. It is Mount Chokai. Sorry about that. Um, next, we're going to move a little bit further south to Fukushima. Um, and then really in the western area here is um, in the Azuwakomatsu. I'm sure I said that perfectly. Is in the western area where you see the Kuras. This area is known for soft uh, water, also surrounded by st um, steep mountains, and it's really utilizing rainwater, and the rainwater is very soft. Um, here you can kind of see where it is within that pre prefecture. Little fun point of the nuclear power plant there, but that has that never affected the 
of rice because it was so far away. Then we're going to move to Niigata. Uh, this is called, its nickname is called Snow Country. It gets 30 feet of snow per year, um, produces a very delicate style of sake because of the snow. Basically, the snow melts into the rice patties, uh, very pure, pristine water. Here's a um, picture of that region. It looks unbelievable. I want to go to Japan so bad. Then we're going to move down to Kyoto. Um, and within Kyoto, you see uh, Fushimi. And this is actually a translation is called Hidden Water. Uh, this you have an underground spring water. And this is the second largest sake producing area. You have extremely soft water here. And it's, it produces a very gentle, smooth sake. Um then Hyogo Prefecture here, moving even further south. Um, you have two different areas within Hyogo that are really famous for water. Um, Nara, and this produces a um, hard water, high in calcium and phosphate content that helps speed up the fermentation. Um, and I'll kind of talk about that, um, how water affects the fermentation a little bit later. Um, this hard hard water uh, here is helping create for a more full-bodied style of sake. And then you have this famous water area called Mayamizu. And it's uh, underground streams that flow uh, coming off Mount Roko. A lot of large-scale breweries in this region. And a third of all sake comes from Nara. And then you have Kobe here, uh, and that is also hard water. And here you can see on the map, um, the down right, you can see um, Kobe here. Um, next, a little more information on the Mayamizu. You'll you'll really see see a lot of stuff about this. This is really considered to be it's like a, a term for heavenly water because of this region um so this is in kobe in yogo and uh you know again i already touched on it coming from mount roko and um it's just it's this very famous water source here next is um hiroshima very soft water and you can kind of make generalizations. The more north you get hard water, but it's not it's not exactly precise on that. And then a little more south, it's a little bit softer. Um, but very soft water here, slow and cool temperature fermentation, a lot of sweet flavors. Another misspelling, sorry. Um, okay, so types of water sources. So most um, breweries are going to source from a well. Uh, they prefer a nice well source without any chemicals. Um, another source is, or, is rivers coming from the mountains or lakes. Um, with a, a lot of environmental changes, this can be very risky because now you're going to have some possibility of pollution in the water. And then the last is manufactured tap. Um, basically utilizing that tap water, but um, you're chemically altering it to make sure that you get exactly what you want from your water. 
Um, okay, so good versus bad water. So good water is going to have potassium in it. It's going to have magnesium, phosphoric acids. Um, those are all things that you need to propagate your yeast, which, of course, is super important. Um, bad is iron. High amounts of iron is going to color your sake in this yellow color, dark yellow color, and it can um, affect the taste as well. Um, manganese, also the same thing, too high help, too high of a level. It's um, going to create a chemical reaction with the light and discolor it, and you won't have that really bright, pretty color of sake. Soft versus hard water, you can kind of do some generalizations. Here, soft, um, nansui is the, the name of that in Japanese. Hard is kosi. Um, so soft, you're going to have a sweeter style, lower nutrient um, content, hard, drier style, and higher nutrient content. Um, just went over those. And then we'll talk. I'll talk here uh, a little more detail about strong water in weak water. So strong water is um, water that's going to help promote fermentation. So it's going to have... Um, all of the minerals in there that are going to help that fermentation along. Um, weak refers to water that you're going to have a lot slower and not as strong fermentation. So those are the two different types of water that brewers will refer to and why they're called strong and weak. Um, water is not taken for granted. Um, cast iron pots are used for boiling water for tea. Um, believe to create, sorry, another misspelling, um, ideal pH level. Uh, I thought that was interesting that you can actually purchase some water for $2,000. No, thank you. I don't have money like that. Uh, but that's how much they really value water. Uh, and some producers use one type of water for their sake and some, and then they'll use a different type for cleaning their equipment. So, there you have it. Any questions? That's great. Perfect. Yeah, really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I think we probably think about the rice a lot with sake or maybe the, the koji, um, but the water definitely has a very important impact as, as we saw. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess that'll do it for today. What's uh, what's on deck for next week? Any requests? No. Okay, we'll do beer. Mm, good one. Yeah. Yeah. Does I that could sound good? Increase my beer knowledge. Awesome. Um, cool. I'll think about some assignments. Awesome. Thank cool. you, Nick. Have Thank a great you, weekend. Bye. Bye. Bye.